And welcome. This is the Green Majority. I'm your host, Darren Kaster. You are listening live, possibly on CIUT 89.5 FM here in Toronto, or you may possibly be listening to us on our one of our wonderful and very much appreciated community syndicates, Coast to Coast, or as of this week, live announcement, where there was that soundboard when I needed it. Wee-oo, wee-oo. Uh, we're also back on iTunes. Stefan, amazing. Yes. It was only six weeks down. Only six weeks. <laughs> yeah, you promised you wouldn't uh, do that. All right, fine. <laughs> Having fun with voices here today. Uh, no, we are. Uh, uh, well, right off the bat, I just want to let people know that uh, if you were a one of our iTunes uh, listeners and you were frustrated, one of the people that emailed me, being like, "Darren, what's going on?" Mm. Um, we are now back up because we have uh, been accepted to SoundClouds uh, podcasting beta program. Blah 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 blah. Which means that they are now hosting all of our sound for us. Which means a few things. It means we're back on iTunes. It means that the thing that was causing us to go down from iTunes will never happen again because uh, it's some stupid thing having to do with RSS code links, blah, 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 with iTunes. Uh, iTunes, but now that our sound is being hosted directly by SoundCloud, that will never happen again uh, because it's not dependent on the web page that you have it linked to. So that's amazing. Uh-huh. Uh, it also means that we get shiny new players with like cool graphics and stuff embedded in the web page. Yeah, so it looks, all, it, looks, it, looks, it looks fancy. It looks better, and more importantly, it works. Mm. <laughs> two, two, two really key things I <laughs> Functionality you know? It looks better but now it doesn't work No mm. it also works <laughs> Great Stefan, uh, we, we are, uh, th- it was sort of in lieu. What we're going to do, we have, a, we have an eight-week rotation of the opening slot. Mm. Um, we didn't have one of our, because we have six people booked right now for those eight slots. And what we're doing in the, uh, in the interim period, uh, until I decide to try and reach out to a couple more folks, uh, feel free, by the way, to email us. If you have a suggestion of somebody that you think would be good to hear an update from every eight weeks, you can feel free to submit them or suggest yourself or CC us both if they're a friend of yours and, and suggest it, whatever you wish. In the interim period, however, uh, you and I are essentially going to be just sort of co-hosting or taking turns, presenting something. And we hadn't really decided until the last minute this week. <clears throat> but there's the uh, Twitter is a flutter, if you mm-hmm. will. Uh-huh. Twitter is a Twitter. I've been waiting like six months to use that. <laughs> uh, and the inter- interwebs is a buzz with uh, news of the Obama-China deal. So we're going to talk about that for a couple minutes. Just before I let, uh, before I go to Stefan to, uh, to introduce that as well, the, we're still sort of in our food month here. Uh, it's not going to be a solid month, obviously. We, we missed a little bit there. Um, but we will be hearing from Vanessa Lingyu, who's one of the directors. Uh, in the interview, I call her the director. She's actually one of the co-directors, so a director, of Food Forward, which is a really innovative uh, uh, group of... Uh, food group that works, uh, I, I can only sort of describe them as a food group at this point because they have many separate smaller initiatives. We're going to be dealing mostly with Cater Toronto, uh, which is a program that takes um, people from uh, a variety of communities, but primarily people in uh, low-income neighborhoods and that sort of stuff to help them who have cooking ability but don't have access to professional kitchens and that sort of thing provide an income for themselves by getting access to those services and those things that allow them to get certified and, and legitimized so that they can use their cooking skills to earn a living for themselves, which I think is excellent. So we're going to hear from her midway through the program. And then as usual, of course, we have Kevin Farmer coming up at the end of the show. But without further ado, Stefan, I throw the floor to you. Yeah, so... Or just just get on a bit of the uh, the United States China deal because obviously that is the the number one uh, story this week I think in climate uh, for sure. Uh, so first of all, I'll give a very quick rundown for the people who aren't exactly you know haven't been following this as much as obviously we have been. You uh, mean not everybody does nothing but read news articles all week, Stephen? I, I, I don't think so. I think some people actually have lives. Oh, I'm okay, eighty percent sure someone lives a life somewhere. Huh. And so this is for them. All right. Well, for this theoretical group of people. Go yes. Ahead. Uh, so it, it was a, it was a deal announced earlier this week 
it's obviously it's, it's currently what's interesting. There's two main things that are the biggest news to take away from this. First is that uh, it actually is a bunch of new numbers and new targets set uh, for both countries. Uh, which is especially interesting for China because this is the first time China actually is given a time where they aim to actually hit their peak emissions, uh, which is obviously you know, the previous stuff was all energy intensity stuff, which basically allowed them to go as ener- roughly as business as usual, uh, whereas this actually gives them a, a time where they are aiming now to, uh, to actually end or to peak emissions growth. Um, and then that's 2030. And the United States has a, has a pretty ambitious cuts as well. Um, and so the numbers, the exact numbers are: the United States wishes for a 26 percent cut in CO2 emissions alone, um, and then 28 percent is their stretch goal, uh, which is interesting. And then China is looking to actually re- reduce itself, and by 2030, obviously, um, is their is their stated plan. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of interesting things about this. The first is that for the United States to hit this goal, uh, like both both goals are are very audacious. Uh, even you, most, you know, there are still some people in, in who are correctly saying that this isn't enough to keep us below two degrees. Uh, but it's so much more than that we've heard before to now. To be fair, that was the subtitle of Obama's book. <laughs> Not quite the audacity of hope. hope, right? Yes. Um, but so, the, eh? well done. <laughs> all right, all right, I'll get that. Um, so the numbers here are. Uh, what's interesting here is so for the United States to just hit its goal. Uh, would require something like in even just energy. So forgetting the fact that transportation, uh, you know, is 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 there as well. Uh, you, they would need to have a seventy five percent reduction in coal plants or, or coal, coal use in power plants um, by twenty twenty five, which is way it's it's so much it's so much more than they're doing right now. Uh, and of course now with Republicans taking over Congress and the Senate, there's questions of how really how much he can do. And so this is really one of those things where Obama's going to put it in, will do maybe whatever he can, but it's up to successor to actually match this uh, without question, uh, which of course means if they get a Republican in 2016, this, this deal is basically done. But <laughs> let's pretend that's not going to happen. Um, and, then, and, so, and so for China, um, their, their, their big thing is to actually curb emissions growth and then sort of peak that at 2030. Uh, what's interesting here is how much everything China does dwarfs everything everyone else does. Because even if like, so, this so basically the difference between the the stretch goal for the United States is twenty eight percent reduction. Uh, and so if you see a twenty six percent reduction uh, versus twenty eight percent reduction in United States emissions, um, it looks about one hundred and twenty million metric tons of CO two a year. That's the number. That's the difference between those two goals. If China hits their goal to peak even one year before their plan, that is basically the same thing. So this is – it's just the, – the monumentality of what China is able to do in emissions-wise because of how much emissions they actually currently create is, is, is it sort of dwarfs everyone else. Just really quickly, this pulls me back, and I've mentioned this on the show before, but it pulls me back to uh, Justin Trudeau was lampooned by Rex Murphy on the CBC and uh, a few other people. And of course, all the conservatives went all after him. But for I, th- I think a quote that was taken slightly out of context, I don't, I don't want to completely give him a free ride, but I, I know what he was getting at. He said it badly, but he was essentially saying this. He sort of he said off the cuff sort of in a, in a very flippant mm-hmm. manner that he sort of envied China because they could get stuff done. And, of course, the, the, the right wing went berserk about this, about saying Trudeau wants to turn Canada into China. No, that's not mm-hmm. what he was saying. What he was saying was simply was that it must be nice to be able to just like well, we're going to decide to do this and then it's fiat not because he wants to necessarily enact his will I think specifically I will give them the benefit of the doubt of what he was saying was for stuff like this where it was just there's inaction 
do to all these competing interests, and it's the right thing to do, but you just there, there's sort of artificial reasons that are preventing it, and just execute. And that's what sort of China is able to do. And that's not a, a defense of China. And people say, well, what about the human rights? Well, yes, that, that's a separate issue. But we're just talking on this issue. Um, that doesn't mean we should adopt their form of government. What we're, we're saying is we need to be able to do what they're doing, and uh, they're doing it. And the, the more we muck about with arguing with each other, the farther behind we're falling. Not to say that we need to adopt their government style, but as in we need to catch up. Mm, yeah, exactly. Uh, and so another question, of course, ends up being um, it, it, just the fact that China can peak at 2030, 2030 matters also – just the, the when it matters as much as the where, as in how, how high will the emissions get when they, when they hit that peak. Uh, and so the, the, most, the, f- the best study I could find basically it seems to estimate about 17% above right now levels where they'll hit. And, they'll, and to do that, they would need a $38 carbon tax. Mm-hmm. Uh, which sort of gets me to the next point I wanted to make, which is all about um, as much as the, the you know as much as we have a conservative government here in Canada and the Republicans in the United States are basically saying like I love the Republican response to the United States in the, which this was like we will stop Obama from trying to save the world is basically <laughs> what they're saying it's unbelievable <laughs> well um, it's all a giant hoax and he, I don't know if you know he's a he's a Kenyan Muslim t- uh, communist right it's also not to, not to mention the fact that this is a it's a job killing. Uh, EPA ruling. Yes, because everybody knows that solar panels are built by little pixies that okay. don't require payment. Exactly. Well, that's the problem. It's it's really really the problem is that the they're run by is that the Democrats are too much. The, they're, they're in the pockets of big pixie. That's yeah. the problem. That's, <laughs> nice. that's my concern. Well, actually, sorry if I may cut in with sarcasm yeah. with an actual with one of my actual points, which is that which is the the, the first thing I wanted to mention. We're we're not going to get too much farther into this here. If you want to hear more commentary, we'll for sure be covering it on this week's uh, YouTube show. If you haven't been checking that out, go ahead and check out the YouTube uh, channel. Stefan and I been making weekly videos talking about a variety of issues that are not covered on the show. It's all bonus material, as it were. Um, so I don't know where we'll cover it, but we're going to address this somewhere. It may end up being in the bonus show or something. But um, it was just the fact that they're, you know, they are now in the position of essentially being the uh, manufacturing sector for the planet. And so, you know, people are saying, well, you know, if China sticks to it, no, 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 I'm actually, I'm far more concerned that the U.S. will stick to it. Because now that China basically makes everything for everyone, they're in the absolute biggest position to benefit from a massive transition to renewable energy. So we want to talk about, you know, saving jobs and, you know, pr- you know protecting the economy and all that stuff. You better hurry up and catch up because mm. as soon as this ball starts getting a little bit of a uh, uh, roll going on, um, if you're not competing with them for renewing, uh, for producing renewable materials and for uh, low carbon and, and energy saving technology and all that stuff, you're basically throwing your entire, the rest of your manufacturing sector out the window as irrelevant. And uh, n- not to mention all the, your energy infrastructure and everything else. Yeah. And that's what, that's where I was trying to, trying to get to this uh, with my last couple of seconds uh, was that oh, China is basically already said that they're going to open up the, what will immediately become the world's largest carbon market in 2016. Uh, and so, is, so my question basically is, is this the beginning of the end for the carbon bubble? That's the question. And if it is the beginning of the carbon bubble, what does that mean for Keystone XL, Energy East, and really Canadian – the Canadian economy, which is now – which is like as, as much as it's called the petrostate. Uh, that's – if, if the amount of money you have to put into sort of these, these sort of things infrastructure-wise, if, if China really means business – these are these are suddenly this is suddenly starting to look like a lot of sunk costs. <laughs> if if we, if the new if the new uh, global industry was piracy, uh, Harper's busy investing in sabers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
So I think we'll let's leave it there. I, I had a couple more sarcastic and a couple mm-hmm. more serious comments, a few of each. Um, but let's leave it for the bonus show. So if you want to check out the rest of our uh, review of this issue and uh, some predictions, I also I also want to get a little bit more into the prediction game. Yeah. Uh, we usually talk about them off air, but I'm willing to go on record mm-hmm. uh, with some of these. So stay tuned. Check out the website, greenmajority.ca. Also, our links to our YouTube channel and everything are up there. We're just past 170 videos we posted. Woo. Woo. Uh, several of those you can't see because they're bonus content, but you can learn all about that at greenmajority.ca. We are, however, going to take our first music break now. You're listening to The Green Majority. We'll be right back in a few minutes to listen to Christine Ling Yu from Food Forward. This is uh, I. Th- I don't ever get to do the read-ins after songs. This is such a such a such a treat, Darren. You're not being thrown too. Not being thrown too. I get to throw to you in a second. Uh, no, because partially, I, I'm going to say it's because I did the beginning. I also got to choose the music this week, and that was the Cool Hands. Uh, I'm going to call them a friend of the show. Yeah, uh, there you just go. because I like calling things friends of the show. Your friends are my, my friends. Fr- there we go. It's friends of the show, and they're actually playing tonight at the Silver Dollar. If you are in Toronto on this Friday uh, at nine o'clock, so check them out if you can. And to Darren for the interview. Well, no, I was going to say if you're not in Toronto, where can where oh, can people uh, go for that? D- just check them out. Just, I'm going to say. You know, I'm going to go out and say if you Google them, <laughs> you will find them. Uh, that song was called Smoke Break. Uh, and that might have been actually, that might have been like a premiere. We might have premiered that song, actually. Oh, snap. Yeah. I'm oh, going to say cool. we did. Again. All right. Well, just who's going to, you know, if we're wrong, email us and yeah. we'll probably not care. <laughs> uh, so, I, first of all, major correction because it would not be the Green Majority if I didn't mangle something about somebody's name. I apologize sincerely. It is Vanessa Lingyu from Food Forward, not Christine. My apologies. Mm-hmm. Sincerely, I don't know if I just did that the last time or, or both times, but uh, somebody else was in my head. My apologies. However, we are going to now go to this interview. I uh, spoke yesterday with Vanessa Lingyu from Food Forward uh, about uh, many of her initiatives, but primarily Cater Toronto. Take it away. I'm 
Oh, and brief minor technical difficulties. That's okay. That was a perfect time to come back into that song, though. Yeah, no, it was, it was a really, really wake you up sort ah! of thing. If you were not awake at eleven eighteen on this Friday, that was going to wake you up. <laughs> oh man! So uh, we've been working some on some new uh, formats just while uh, just while they're fiddling in the in the booth there, mm-hmm. uh, getting the the pre record ready. So we've um, we've been experimenting a lot with those uh, with the video stuff that we've been doing, and part of the emphasis has been just there's so much every week, and part of the reason we started doing it in the first place was there's just so much every week that we don't get to talk about, mm-hmm. and then occasionally it's because I want to talk about it in a way that's not appropriate for family friendly <laughs> radio. Um, for instance, our review of that op ed uh, in the New York Times yeah, a couple weeks ago would not have been arable no. on the radio. No, however, a little if, too angry. If you're interested in slightly more colorful content, <laughs> um, however, um, we've sort of realized that, uh, well, not realized, but uh, much to my chagrin, unfortunately, we have to do, we have to cut back. We've had to cut back a little bit the amount that we're doing just because we're, we're spending a little bit more time dressing up the videos. So mm-hmm. I actually spent a few hours making custom graphics for all sorts of cool things yesterday. Uh, but we'd really appreciate some, some feedback, even if you sort of watch the first few minutes and say, guys, you know what? You're totally out to lunch here. Um, your videos are terrible. That's feedback we'd love to have because yeah. it's all constr- uh, all criticism is constructive at at this point. So mm. uh, please do go ahead and check it out. But uh, Kevin's giving me the thumbs up here, so we're ready. So uh, shot number two at uh, Vanessa Lingyu from Food Forward. You, who's the uh, director for Food Forward, uh, which is a Toronto food-based. Uh, not for profit that deals with a whole wide range of initiatives, but specifically we're going to start uh, asking Vanessa a little bit about Cater Toronto today. But first of all, welcome to the Green Majority, Vanessa. Thanks for having me, Darren. So w- before we get specifically into uh, the Cater Toronto part of the one of your many initiatives, would you just give us a little bit of a background and a little bit of a history about what Food Forward is and, and your involvement with it? Sure. Uh, Food Forward has been around for just over four years, maybe four and a half years. And it came about um, through Darcy, who's the founding director, and there's uh, a few of us that are co-directors. And what we do is educate, advocate, and connect around food system um, topics and issues. So that goes everywhere from production to all the way back around to uh, composting and how that affects uh, how we think about food and what we do with food. And so one of the items here I see is that, that there's, a, there's a really strong emphasis on integration into the community. So what I mean by that is that there are a lot of things that are almost by definition community groups and that they're groups that service the community. But you, you really have an emphasis here on integrating and working with and, and sort of building people who are, are considered almost your teammates and that it's a, that it's a collective effort rather than uh, you're just putting out information or, or running workshops or something like that. Can you talk a little bit about how you relate to the community directly? What are the sorts of things that you work with them and, and how have they helped you build your uh, momentum? Sure. We really, uh, we really try to engage with community members, residents, and various stakeholders because very frequently uh, different topics are covered by specialist groups and the, uh, there's a lot of top-down discussion going on. And so what we do is try to um, encourage and incite individuals to, to look at structural problems that are going on within their own communities and uh, figure out ways that they can do things and, and have their voices represented. Some of the other um, activity here that is mentioned specifically is uh, advocating at City Hall. 
that's mm-hmm. something we've had the opportunity to speak to a, a number of people uh, to from a, from a variety of perspectives, um, and and their experience, uh, as told to me, varies wildly based on on what it is that they're actually advocating for. So, what has been your experience communicating um, and advocating with City Hall about these types of issues? Has there been generally a good reception? Has it been hard going? You know, in the last four years, we've really come a long way because. Uh, people, everybody relates to food in different ways. But to use food as a focus, we're able to address different topics such as food insecurity, income security, um, jobs, employment, entrepreneurship, um, and how that relates to people in their everyday lives. And so um, through a lot of engagement of community members, we've been able to uh, work with them to build capacities so that they may be able to go to a meeting and advocate for their own rights. Uh, we've also spoken to lots of counselors and candidates and, and people at City Hall about how food can help them promote some of their own um, goals. And food it relates to people, in, in for many people, three times a day. And so to bring it back to a space where, or make it tangible and think about some of the topics that they may be thinking about, whether it's illness and they're not thinking necessarily about what's on their plate, but making it relatable in that way because food really touches on so many things like the environment and and such. So let's dig a little uh, into the the main thing that we wanted to talk to you about today, which is the Cater Toronto aspect, which is, uh, as described on your site, is a, a network of, of uh, caterers and, and quiet operators and social enterprises. And um, it, it almost sounds like a food lobby. But perhaps you can do a better job describing. Yeah, I wouldn't call this a lobby. Um, Cater Toronto is a community-based catering network for social and economic opportunities and outcomes. And so how it came about was about a year and a half ago, um, through the work that I was doing with Food Forward all over the city, I was noticing um, very frequently that th- there was many, many structural challenges. And everybody was talking about similar things, but frequently in isolation or on an individual level. And there's lots of reasons for that. Well, the city is large, and very frequently in the low-income neighborhoods, uh, people are working in isolation, and they don't know what's happening in another neighborhood. But as it's related to catering and vending or, or food business in general, um, the problems were very frequently systemic or structural. Mm. So uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, through Metcalf Funding, I had proposed that we, we start coordinating and discussing some of these challenges together. And uh, so for about a year, we developed a coordinating committee meeting or coordinating group and we had individuals that were um, had literally never attended a meeting at all and then we also had managers of successful social enterprises and um, sorry I'm skipping forward a little bit uh, quiet operators are it's it's a it's a term that I made up but essentially um, some people might call them illegal uh, others would call them yet to be certified but they were operating out of their homes I'm not using a commercially certified kitchen, and and there's lots of reasons behind that. One of the huge ones is cost of a commercial kitchen. Then there were social enterprises that are frequently connected to nonprofits or charities that are doing some kind of programming around their catering company. And then social enterprises were uh, doing catering and aligned, sorry, micro enterprises are one or two individuals doing some catering 
using, you know, a commercial kitchen, they're, they're, they've got their registration, et cetera, but they're, they're still very small and, and challenged in different ways. So to go back to what we did in year one, we came together and really discussed some of the challenges that they were all facing and found that many of them were similar um, and really developed some consensus, built some capacity around how to really look at these and move forward. And so challenges included regularity of income, um, smallness in the sense of not being able to have a voice, especially in comparison to groups like companies like Subway or McDonald's, and really coming to a sense of um, that we weren't competing against each other, that in order to kind of move forward, there was going to need to be a larger collaboration and, and creativity. Uh, so we had a large forum. They had identified topics and, and even speakers that they would like to hear from. So they weren't necessarily interested in hearing from somebody who, A, had no experience in food, but B, somebody who was going to come from a top-down um, approach. They wanted to hear from other caterers that were successful and really be able to engage in different ways that, that they had not had op- an opportunity to before. Uh some unintended outcomes that happened were that we started getting catering orders, which was excellent, really. Um, and we had a lot of transparent discussion, and, um, and and we really couldn't say no, even though we weren't intending to cater, because one of these outcomes was economic outcomes. So at the beginning, we started with, um, I collected the information, and I passed it on directly to the caterers, and I said, if you would like this opportunity, please contact the potential client directly. Um, And that was because, you know, we weren't set up to do so, and we weren't, you know, we wanted to provide the opportunity, but really it was, um, we weren't ready. So for the forum, we had some time, and, um, and we, I literally drew a, a pie chart and made it into the plate chart on on a big piece of paper. And I said, well, what, what would this look like if we did something like social procurement or others might call it social purchasing or collaborative catering? And uh, I said, as an example, if the caterer or the client, sorry, the client wanted from the West End of Toronto a Colombian brownie that was gluten-free. It was really simple to say, well, Cookie Martinez, this is yours because nobody else does it. You have such a unique product and the client wants specifically that. No-brainer. But in the other instance, if the client wanted, I don't know, um, from Thorncliffe neighborhood, um, doll with cumin and ginger but no garlic, we have possibly five caterers. What do we do in this sense? And so we had this really open discussion about how would this work. Um, and in order to move forward together, we really needed to have that discussion. There was a lot of other things that needed to be discussed, like uh, very practical skills when it comes to food is pricing, menu development, um, and really the vision of not undercutting each other, moving forward, um, thinking about things like uh, many of the caterers weren't accounting for food cost, um, sorry, not food cost, but their own labor cost, the cost of renting a commercial kitchen, um, and really looking at being able to to make viable um, 
food businesses out of what they were currently passionate about and, and the skills they had um, that were really valuable, but making it work in in a way that they could make a living. Um, so moving forward from that, we started just through, I guess, my own networks and Food Forward's networks getting many, many more orders. And so I, I needed to make partnerships with um, commercial kitchens and continue to do the work that I was doing. So um, one partnership that I'm really proud that we're about to announce is um, with Paintbox. Uh, we've developed a kitchen membership program, and um, it, it comes through the feedback that we've gotten from the caterers. We've piloted it for uh, four months, and so it's very... Um, it's very receptive to allowing caterers that are just getting started to grow, um, but provides a lot of support. So what I mean by that is even if you are a micro-enterprise, you have two people working on, say, a jamming production company, there's only so much that you can do in a day. So we're able to figure out ways um, with retail channels to get in and um provide those larger opportunities. Retail is also very interesting to caterers because um, there's irregularity in catering. With the holidays, frequently there's lots of orders, but in order to make a living, it's, it's you need some regularity of income. Sorry, I'm going everywhere. And, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We're actually we're, we're running a little shy on time, and I had a, a couple other specific things I wanted to ask you, if you, if you don't sure. mind. Um, sure. So one of the you, – you mentioned it, and I just want to bring it back to you because it, it's something that we don't often talk about on, on my program, but uh, I, I think it deserves a, a special bit of attention, and, and, and I think you'd have a unique perspective on it, which was the, the role between income inequality and low-income neighborhoods and low-income families – and food accessibility, because you know, as as many many studies have shown, and, and is sort of what is uh, just logically obvious, I guess, if you if you take a second to think about it, is that one of the uh, of the costs that someone who's low income has that they can't avoid, the the one that is sort of the easiest to be flexible with a with an with a you know, an oscillating but always not so high budget is food, right? So you can't, you know, on a month-to-month basis negotiate your rent or your cable bill, but you could skip lunch. And and the effect that this has, because obviously if you're if you're not eating well, then then you just simply can't function as well. And this means that you're, you know, less uh, less alert and have less energy and all sorts of things. So can you just, with that little bit of intro context, can you just talk a little bit more about the role of food accessibility and the low income, and and that sort of as a as a vicious circle almost. Yeah, sure. Um, so you're absolutely right that there's a, a relationship between them. So the connection between economic outcomes in low-income neighborhoods when it comes to food enterprise are much deeper than just dietary and and knowledge. It's about um, food business skills, and also it's about uh, very frequently racialization and, and how that connects to how the general population and customers view the value of the food that uh, many of these small entrepreneurs are trying to produce and, and make a living. Um, so to give an example from food justice uh, workshops that I've conducted in the past, um, I ask people to consider why is it that we we think that authentic, and I'm really queasy about the word authentic, uh, <laughs> French food 
is um, it's something classy and it's high end and it's date worthy or you know Instagram worthy and it should be a hundred dollars a plate but for authentic uh, Sri Lankan food or authentic pho um, it should be three dollars a bowl or and it should be dirty and in a hole in the wall mm-hmm. so when you bring that back to a small entrepreneur that's trying and, and putting in that time and work and very likely getting the same or more ingredients probably at a higher cost um you're not getting the same. So your input is larger, but your output, um, as in um, the prices that you're able to charge, are are less. And some of that has to do with the customer, but some of that also has to do with the knowledge that some of the entrepreneurs and and the, um, the voice of the entrepreneurs that they're able to bring to their food. And so what the caterers, what we always, we frequently say is, starting from an asset-based approach, is that we know how to cook. We know how to be very social and cultural around the food, but frequently the caterers, they suck at economic outcomes, and it's not just because of them. It's because of the systemic and structural barriers that, that they face. So, And because many of our caterers, the majority of them are women, it, it bridges into local and global um, food systems challenges, and they take it a step much uh, much further um, it's a gender issue too like men own land they also frequently are more likely to be the investors and be able to own um, own spaces that you can produce food whether it's a kitchen or um, access to loans or access to business knowledge um, locally in Toronto I've already faced challenges where women are really excited about their businesses and their husbands won't let them sell food in public. So it's, it, it, it there's many, many challenges that the uh, community caterers face related to um, income. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I think you guys are doing an, uh, an excellent job of, of taking a, um, you know, making, making this in a, as something that people are more aware of and, and organizing and you're, and you're certainly incredibly uh, busy. There's a, there's a whole number of other initiatives that we, we don't even have time to get into, but uh, I do encourage people to go check out your website. If you happen to be in Toronto, are there any uh, upcoming events you'd like to alert people to that, uh, that maybe they should be checking out? Yeah, please. Um, well, first of all, our website is in the works, so please search for us on Twitter and Facebook. Cater Toronto is one word. Squish them together. Um, and upcoming, we are about to announce our kitchen program at um, at Paintbox. And we are more than just a kitchen rental. We we have greater economic outputs by creating venues and and avenues for caterers to to do some of that social engagement, but to create better economic outcomes, like I said. Uh, We've also just released a retail program, and we began with Kyopo Kitchen, which is a small community-based caterer, and we are now available in West End Food Co-op, also in the retail space of Paintbox, and we're developing other channels. Uh, We will be at Food Fight Toronto, which is at uh, Daniel Spectrum on November 19th, and those are the, the, the major ones, but we, we're always open to collaborating in different ways. And we're also advocating and doing some kitchen tours with other spaces so that we can bring some of the, the great stuff that we've been doing in Regent Park 
um, to the other neighborhoods where our community-based caterers are located all over the city. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Vanessa Lingyu, Director at Food Forward. Thank you so much. All right, I get to do the read back both times because uh, it's a special day today. Uh, and I get to throw the music break. I was, was jo- we were joking during the uh, during that playthrough uh, that the sil- the cool hands just did not want to stop playing, and that was that was what caused our uh, our minor technical. They were like, you know what? We're taking over the show. The cool hands are so cool they may or may not have hacked CIT's computers. Yes, remotely. Uh, yes. So you go find them. You can find them tonight <coughs> to get mad at them for taking trying to take over a show at the Silver Dollar tonight at nine o'clock. Uh, here they are for the second song. Take it away. We're back. We're into the final home stretch here on the Green Majority Radio Program here live at CIUT. What up? Whoop. A uh, couple of quick things before we go to Kevin Farmer's section. I'm, I'll wrap this up really quickly. One of them, uh, Green Majority does not necessarily endorse the use of illegal drugs. However, mm, I should note uh, that uh, there was a poll that I posted on Facebook yesterday, which got like a million hits and started quite a lively conversation showing that 14,000 people had uh, submitted. Now, of course, this isn't IPOS read or anything like that. It's an internet-based poll. Um, but for a Canadian newspaper, so presuming that mostly Canadians respond to this, 14,000 people and counting um, when asked uh, should marijuana be decriminalized, not necessarily legalized, but decriminalized, and there's a big difference there. So we're talking about is making it not a criminal offense, but not necessarily legal. There's a difference there. Was 63% for, about 20% against, and about 10% undecided. So mm. just interesting statistic there. Second one before we go to Kevin, which is actually more on topic. Uh, was I just had a quote here, friend Adam Scott, uh, who is the, uh, I believe is still the in charge of climate change portfolio, if you will, uh, over there at Environmental Defense, uh, posted a quote by Obama with regards to his feelings about the Keystone XL. He said, quote, uh, uh, or Obama did rather, not Adam, mm-hmm. uh, quote, understand what this project is. It is providing the ability of Canada to pump their oil, send it through our land down to the Gulf where it will be sold everywhere else. It doesn't have an impact on U.S. gasoline prices. He said, growing visibly frustrated, quote, if my Republican friends really want to focus on what's good for the American people in terms of job creation and lower energy costs, we should be engaging in a conversation about what we're going to produce 
even more homegrown energy. I'd be happy to have that conversation. With that, I will throw to you our very dear friend, Kevin farmer Uh Hi, everyone. Um, okay, um, it looks like my mic is about right. Um, uh, yeah, so obviously, as Stefan pointed out, the, the, the big news this week, uh, without a doubt, has to be the, um, uh, I guess, gentleman's agreement we have between uh, uh, China and the U.S. to curb, well, to to commitments to, to emissions in the case of China, a cap, uh, and in the case of the U.S., uh, a reduction from a, a, a reduction below a benchmark. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, you know, on the one hand, just my two cents on this, uh, although we're volunteers here, so my two cents are really discounted. <laughs> they're free. <laughs> they're free. My two cents are free. <laughs> they're two cents, but they're putting them on a credit card. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, is, on the one hand, this is huge. This might be the biggest news we've ever had with regards to, uh, a, you know, achieving some kind of international accord on emissions. Uh, and on the other hand, this just isn't nearly enough. Uh, it's, it's, it's at least several steps in the right direction. Um, something to note about this, though, is that, is that these agreements <clears throat> aren't in any way framed or, or contextualized in any sort of effort to avoid exceeding a two-degree warming limit. Or you know, con- in the or or to avoid exceeding our carbon budget, which is the same limit phrased in it with a different metric. So these are you know big, they're ambitious, but they're not they're not addressing the problem up front in an upfront kind of way and saying here these are steps, concrete steps towards not exceeding the carbon budget and not exceeding two degrees of warming. And in fact, um, they, they 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 even if they were, they wouldn't be sufficient for achieving that purpose anyway. So, uh, again, it's huge, and it's kind of not nearly enough. Um, uh, what we could hope for is that this might be big enough to permanently change the conversation on this topic. Uh, certainly, uh, in the run-up to the next uh, conference of the parties in France next year, uh, this, 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 this is going to put, uh, you know, a, a, this is going to frame the debate for potentially achieving an agreement on, on caps and reductions in emissions. You know, notably, this is not on the G20 agenda uh, taking place in Australia right now. Uh, and we, we might have to uh, frame Canada and Australia as the axis of carbon. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the key part of that sentence, Kevin, was taking place in Australia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and for sure, there's been pressure from the European countries to get... Uh, uh, emissions, global warming uh, on the agenda, but of course it's being hosted in Australia, part of the axis of carbon. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, Tony Tony Abbott, uh, I always try to say Tony Blair. Uh, <laughs> Freudian Tony, slip. Yeah, uh, Tony Abbott is keeping it off the agenda uh, for obvious reasons. Um, so so enough said. Let's. Uh, w- I, I think we have to see how this unfolds. I mean, if something as big as this can get sort of shouted down or or drowned in American politics, I think. I think that would be, you know, sort of a, um, it could, you know, there's a danger here in the, in the same way that watching Stefan Dion get defeated on a, a green shift or carbon taxing uh, 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 campaign made that whole issue politically toxic here in Canada. So, I mean, if something as big as this can, can uh, you know, get destroyed, it, it might, you know, it's, it, it's a great step forward. It's also a gamble, uh, you know. Um, you know, but what might be fascinating is just to see what excuses Stephen Harper uh, conjures up now to continue to not take action on climate change, because the 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 previous fig leaves that we will uh, only move that we will move, in fact move in lockstep with the United States. Well, that one's gone, uh, and uh, the we we will not come to the table unless the major emitters come to the table. 
that one's gone. Uh, of course, in the meantime, we always just wanted to keep selling those major emitters, our bitumen. Um, so now, and we know he's not going to take any action. I'm, I can, we can state this with high confidence because look at his, look at his history. I mean, look at the democracy-busting tactics he's used just to try to cheerlead for the Tarzans projects. But in particular, he would not take action to reduce emissions in the oil and gas sector, regulations that we've been promised now for seven, eight years, uh, that are noticeably absent, um, despite the fact that uh, the, the emissions from the tar sands themselves were a major irritant towards getting that precious Keystone XL pipeline approved. So not even to get that precious pipeline approved would he uh, try to regulations long overdue, long-promised regulations for the oil and gas sector, not even for that. <laughs> so so I, I, think, I think that just... It's just going to be fun to watch this, <laughs> watch what excuse gets conjured up. Now, noticeably, there's been no, no statements, no statement from... Uh, Sorry, no, if I can just interject for a second. Um, the, the, the point that, that I think is really, really interesting was Harper is a, a, a modus operandi already of being very generally... He trots out this tactic of doing sort of one step forward, three steps back, where he's done this on a few sort of in a few different areas where he'll put out something that's really vapid. But technically, as far as like qualifying for a headline, will address the thing and then say, "Look, we've dealt with this, and you know you're just being unreasonable. Uh, I've already done more than I have to." And anyway, and, and it becomes a, "I did something," and then you market it really, really well uh, to sort of try and silence and confuse the issue, your critics. And so, what, what I think is sort of really interesting on this was that he was completely in a point of view to sort of nip this in the bud from a PR point of view by putting out really, really useless, weak regulations and then just marketing them really well. But oh, he didn't see, yeah. even do that, yeah, I see right? I think that like that would have been a much better strategy, and it fits with with what he normally does, right? So I just think it's really interesting that that he didn't just go, okay, I'll put out some really completely vapid and useless regulations, and then just campaign rid- ridiculously. Look, I've solved this problem, and, and and you know the other side is just being unreasonable. Well, they're they're definitely hewing to the the tired old talking points. Uh, the French president Hollande was spoke at Parliament in, in front of the Canadian Parliament recently. And sort of publicly uh, chided Harper a little to take action on climate change. And I guess Alond uh, would like to notch his resume with a success at the Paris talks uh, if we could finally see, you know, a bind- binding international agreement emerge. Uh, so so he, he sort of publicly brought this issue at, uh, in front of the Canadian Parliament. And afterwards, uh, I, I, I almost fell out of my chair. For a minute, I thought I was living in like the wrong history. And I was like, because Harper said, he said, uh, you know, as part of, I guess, uh, uh, you know, pretending that we've taken action on climate change. He said at one point, Canada has banned coal-fired power plants. And I just about <laughs> felt, I, like, I, seriously, part of my brain had a seizure. And I was like, am I living in the wrong planet? Have I just missed that news for all of these years? Like, he said it with such a straight face. And, and you know, after, after a minute, I went, no, wait a minute. That's just wrong. <laughs> there's, there's, that's just a lie. Ontario closed its coal-fired power plants. Mm. And he seems to be taking, and so they've been taking credit for that uh, implicitly for quite a long time now. And it should be pointed out that part of the reason they were able to do that is because they're getting coal-fired power power from the U.S. That yeah, that that was part of the energy mix for sure. But here's the thing: the talking points over and over and over again with with the Harper avatars is uh, emissions are down in Canada. Um, they're way lower than they would have been if if the Liberals had been in power for the last nine years and not us. Um, okay, uh, sure. Uh, and and the three. While we're making up alternate futures, exactly. Let's let's also. <laughs> you know, if, you know, if the NDP were here, we would have been invaded by aliens. 
If we'd elected the Green Party, we'd already have space colonies on Mars. But the the three major talking points there are that uh, the three things they tried out are that emissions are down, mainly due to, one, the recession. Are you taking credit for the recession? And, <laughs> and, and two, Ontario Ontario closing the coal-fired power plants, which, which they derided and fought. Uh, they ridiculed and, and derided that every step of the way. And then the third thing they take credit for is uh, standards on vehicle emissions, which were – they had no choice. The Americans had already moved on that. And our the, the automotive market between Canada and the U.S. is so tightly integrated, you cannot not follow suit with that. So they're taking credit for two things, a recession, <laughs> an action from an Ontario government that they ridiculed, and automotive standards that were being dictated uh, by the U.S. So, so just to tie it up in a neat little package, he's trying to take credit for things that he either had no influence over or actively fought against. Yeah, exactly. And But when he said Canada banned coal-fired fireflies, like seriously, <laughs> I'm too old for that. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm, too, I'm too fragile for that kind of, uh, re, you know, uh, cognitive dissonance. So the two things I want to point out today really are uh, uh, there's two things underway right now uh, that are very, very interesting and and they're thematically linked. One is a private member's bill by the NDP. Uh, the NDP MP uh, Linda Duncan is uh, proposing Bill uh, C-634. Uh, and this is a, a, an environmental bill of rights. Uh, so this, what, this is, what this would do is uh, establish environmental rights within the Canadian Charter of Rights. Uh, and and uh, uh, and the other thing that's underway that is sadly very the same, but also sort of legally quite different, is that David Suzuki uh, is he, and I might have, I might have be a little late with this news, but he might have finished the actual Blue Dot tour, like the actual physical tour. Mm-hmm. But there is a campaign underway, sponsored by David Suzuki or initiated by David Suzuki, the Blue Dot tour, which is a, a campaign to um, uh, enshrine envi- environmental rights in the Constitution. The, so they're both the same thing in the sense that they're trying to elevate uh, uh, people's right to a healthy environment uh, in, in, in law. Unfortunately, there's quite a big difference between doing this in, is in the Bill of Rights and doing it in the Constitution. So this, the statutory rights that the, the, the NDP bill would cover are probably less powerful um, and, and probably not quite – probably just less powerful. But as, as any Canadian – uh, knows by now, uh, constitutional <laughs> wrangles in this country are kind of soul crushing. <laughs> so, so you know, there might be some real politic. There might be there might be some real pol- political considerations in choosing to pursue uh, one strategy over the other because opening the constitution up for amendments in this country always turns out to be, I don't know, a national discussion no one ever seems to want to have, uh, and w- we might have learned that the hard way. So, you know, it, you know, it, it these things. From my point of view, these these are the kinds of strategies we need to be pursuing. You know, the environmental movement, such as it is, is thousands upon thousands of well-meaning people all trying to be the change they want to see in the world. And that's great and that's fabulous. And we might all become a virtuous avalanche someday that, you know, outpaces and overwhelms the problem. But in the meantime, it just seems to be a lot of well-meaning action that isn't focused and isn't coordinated and isn't directed towards, you know, big goals. Uh, and I think we're I think I think um, I think we're past the point that we can just sort of wait for positive change in the world to to become a virtuous avalanche. Who knows? Things can happen overnight. That's the way these things go. But uh, but, you know, in the meantime, we you know, it's something like 170 other countries already have uh, environmental protections in, in, in sort of rights to an, a, a healthy environment. As far as I know, only Ecuador actually has it as a constitutional guarantee 
And if you want to read some some really eloquent, poignant, almost poetic uh, writing, just read the the Ecuador um, rights of nature, the passage in the Ecuador 2009 Constitution about the rights of nature. Uh, and and it, 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 it's a little far-fetched in, in a couple of places, um, but it's, it, it is quite beautiful. And it's, it's also something that when you think about it, it, it's, it, why wouldn't we have this? You know, <laughs> you can't, you know, how long can you hold your breath? How long can you go without, you know, water and air and food? These are like the primal inputs to a healthy life. And they aren't technically protected. <laughs> we, don't, we, we don't have like guarantees that, you know, that we have any rights to, to, to you know, a, a clean environment, breathable air, drinkable water, healthy soil, a stable climate. Uh, so, so there's two things you can do that are unfortunately not coordinated. And you can write your MP and, and, and uh, ask them to endorse this uh, private member's bill from Linda Duncan in, in the, the NDP. And you can uh, uh, endorse David Suzuki's Blue Dot Tour. Uh, it would be great if we could do both. It'd be great if these things were coordinated somehow, which clearly they're not. Um, but you know, it, this is this is you know this is the kind of action we need, and uh, it, it's we we are we are kind of way behind the curve. Weirdly enough, I mean, people in Canada we think we're very green, uh, and we're not. We're not nearly as green as we think we are. And and study after study ranks us low and continue, continuously lower. I think we're in, dead last this year. I think you, we hit it. Yeah, we're in, in study after study on all of the sort of the, the leading indicators, you know, because there's too many to name at this point. But just in general, uh, when, the, when you know, all of these studies about environmental health and, and environmental action, certainly whenever climate change gets factored into this, we, we, we crater. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's the, uh, Canada is also now has the highest is is the the how do I say this? The rate of deforestation in in Canada is the greatest. Maybe in, in like the the rate of deforestation. Mm-hmm. That so, was actually one of our most viewed videos of all time. Was covering that issue. Mm-hmm. So so it's not so so in, deforestation is increasing in Canada faster than it's increasing anywhere else. So you have to be careful how you phrase those metrics. Uh, but but still, it's not a it's not a it's not a great indication of our overall environmental stewardship. And still, there's this there's this overarching notion in Canada that we're just very green, we're very environmental, we have all this you know empty space that we're not using, so we must be environmental because you know this country's this country's essentially a big park, uh, and, and it's not. We have we have a terrible track record on a lot of things, and uh, you know this is this is this is you know either either of these initiatives are sort of it'd be nice to say they're very forward thinking. They are, except that everyone else is beating us to it. <laughs> so so you know if you're in a letter writing mood. Uh, write your MP about the private members bill from the NDP. <clears throat> uh, go online and endorse uh, David Suzuki's. And if you're if you're also in any sort of mood to to be an activist today, and I usually don't say this at all, uh, just look at the ingredients on everything you're using, and if it says palm oil, stop buying it. <laughs> <laughs> Although have fun discovering that about fifty percent of all of your consumer products have palm oil in them. Then have fun. Uh, uh, finding an alternative that's less objectionable, although anything is less objectionable than palm oil, but have fun finding substitutes. Uh, and while you're busy voting with your wallet, um, which is almost certainly a waste of time, um, uh, again, uh, go to maybe the Rainforest Action Network or maybe, I'm not sure, maybe Forest Ethics here in Canada. Mm-hmm. I, I can't be certain about that, but certainly Rainforest Action Network uh, will, is, has a campaign against palm oil. 
And if you're already writing your MP about the uh, private members bill from the NDP, mention palm oil. Mm. Uh, this is this is this might be the sing- you know outside of climate change this might be the single greatest ecological scourge taking place on the planet at the moment and if you really want to feel horrible for the rest of your week I will bring out pictures of of, of orangutans burned to death uh, probably sentient beings that we just um, uh, burned to death so we could clear forests to grow palm oil uh, and that that would be that would be the the baby harp seal the uh, approach to uh, to motivate people to take action. <laughs> I'm afraid we're super out of time uh, for this week, but thank you as usual every week uh, very much, Kim Farmer, for both your last segment there and for teching. Last word, and I'll give you the readout as well because it's a special Stefan show this week. Go ahead. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, no, one, w- one minute. One minute. I was going to jump in on, on just what Kevin mentioned about uh, about opening the Constitution thing, which is really interesting. Because the one one of the main things I remember from, uh, from my environmental law class was the idea that whenever you open the Constitution, someone always throws in a right to property on that. And then and then that and then, and then all the gr- all the gr- all the green groups that came over to want to support it, then have to unsupport it because that would destroy almost every environmental law we have in the country. Uh, so everything is more complex than you want it to be. Don't have palm oil. This is the green majority, 89.5, and all the wonderful citizens. Have a great week. Green week is the, is the readout, isn't it? it Enjoy, is. guys.